Welcome, my friends. Welcome to the 25th episode of the Corbett Report, entitled Shut Up and Eat Your GMOs. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of western Japan on this 23rd day of December 2007. I'd like to take this opportunity to remind my listeners that all of the documentation backing up all of the claims in today's episode can be garnered from my website, www.corbettreport.com. Please go there, and under the Episodes tab, you will find a link to the documentation for today's episode, Sorted by Time Index. And now, without further ado, it's time for the real news. On December 17, 2007, PrisonPlanet.com released this report, headlined, Ron Paul Smashes Record with $6 Million-Plus Haul. Ron Paul has smashed the all-time record for political donations on one day, beating John Kerry's previous effort as he hauled in over $6 million during a 24-hour period that coincided with the 234th anniversary of the Boston Tea Party. The true figure could even tally up to near $7 million once all donations have been fully processed. Paul campaign spokesman Jesse Benton confirmed that the average donation was around $50. Over 107,000 individual donors contributed to the sum of almost $18 million for the quarter and counting. The congressman is on course to quadruple his fundraising in comparison to the $5.1 million raised during the third quarter, which itself was a doubling of the second quarter total. In other news, this story from the Washington Post from December 18, 2007. FBI-CIA debate significance of terror suspect. Al-Qaeda captive Abu Zubaydah, whose interrogation videotapes were destroyed by the CIA, remains the subject of a dispute between FBI and CIA officials over his significance as a terrorism suspect, and whether his most important revelations came from traditional interrogations or from torture. While CIA officials have described him as an important insider whose disclosures under intense pressure saved lives, some FBI agents and analysts say he is largely a loud-mouthed and mentally troubled hotelier whose credibility dropped as the CIA subjected him to a simulated drowning technique known as waterboarding and to other enhanced interrogation measures. The question of whether Abu Zubaydah, whose real name is Zain al-Abidin Muhammad Hussein, was an unstable source who provided limited intelligence under gentle questioning, or a hardened terrorist who cracked under extremely harsh measures, goes to the heart of the current Washington debate over coercive interrogations and torture. Also this week, from USA Today, this story, Lobster serves as model for new X-ray device. 
The lobster is at the forefront of the next new weapon in the war on terror, a handheld device that could help homeland security agents see through wood, concrete, and steel. Technology based on the crustacean's uncanny ability to see through dark, cloudy, deep-sea water is guiding scientists funded by the government in the early stages of developing a ray that one day could be used by border agents, airport screeners, and the Coast Guard. David Throckmorton, a project manager in Homeland Security Science and Technology Division, says a California company has developed a handheld prototype called the Lexid Lobster Eye X-ray Imaging Device that can see through walls. The image shown on a small screen isn't high-definition TV quality, Throckmorton says, but it's good enough to pick up a cache of weapons or the parts of a bomb. It can also show a bordered agent if a person is crouched on the other side of a steel or concrete wall. Today's episode deals primarily with big food, or the infiltration of the agricultural industry by big business. It is perhaps fitting that this week's episode follows directly on the heels of last week's episode about big oil and their peak oil scam. And regular listeners to the Corbett Report will perhaps remember episode 9 in which we dealt with big pharma. Significantly, these three industries, big oil, big food, and big pharma, share more in common than simply the capitalization of their names or the fact that they are all preceded by the adjective big. It's easy enough to demonstrate the links between big oil and big pharma, and a fact that might not be understood among the general population is that pharmaceuticals are largely derived from petrochemicals. And for the link between big pharma and big food, One need only type the word farming, P-H-A-R-M-I-N-G, into Google and see what results you'll find. Another link suggests itself in the biography of John Francis Queenie, the founder of Monsanto, an agricultural big business which we will be getting into in today's episode, who was a 30-year veteran of the pharmaceutical industry. So it is perhaps fitting that we will start today's episode by looking at a landmark U.S. Supreme Court decision from 1980 that dealt with the oil industry. This unassuming Supreme Court decision, known as Diamond v. Chakrabarty, is arguably one of the most important decisions ever handed down by the U.S. Supreme Court, although it's not hailed as such in the annals of case law. It comes from June 16, 1980, and I'll read directly from the Diamond v. Chakrabarty decision, which was handed down by Chief Justice Berger. It should be noted that this case dealt specifically with Title 35 of the U.S. Code, Section 101, dealing with patent law. The decision reads, in part, quote, Title 35 U.S.C. 101 provides for the issuance of a patent to a person who invents or discovers any new and useful manufacture or composition of matter. Respondent filed a patent application relating to his invention of a human-made, genetically engineered bacterium capable of breaking down crude oil, a property which is possessed by no naturally occurring bacteria. A patent examiner's rejection of the patent application's claims for the new bacteria was affirmed by the Patent Office Board of Appeals on the ground that living things are not patentable subject matter under 101. The Court of Customs and Patent Appeals reversed, concluding that the fact that microorganisms are alive is without legal significance for purpose of the patent law. Held, a live, human-made microorganism is patentable subject matter under 101. End quote. Even in 1980, in the infancy of the biotech revolution, 
The ramifications of this legal precedent and the gravity of the case was felt by all of the justices involved. The decision later notes that legal briefs received by the court were in fact very troubling about the information presented regarding the possibility of microorganisms or actual life forms being patentable. The decision goes on to note, in part, quote, The briefs present a gruesome parade of horribles. Scientists, among them Nobel laureates, are quoted suggesting that genetic research may pose a serious threat to the human race, or, at the very least, that the dangers are far too substantial to permit such research to proceed apace at this time. We are told that genetic research and related technological developments may spread pollution and disease, that it may result in a loss of genetic diversity, and that its practice may tend to depreciate the value of human life. These arguments are forcefully, even passionately, presented. They remind us that, at times, human ingenuity seems unable to control fully the forces it creates, that, with Hamlet, it is sometimes better to bear those ills we have than fly to others that we know not of. End quote. Nevertheless, the decision had been made. Life forms were patentable at the U.S. Patent Office. This was the incentive needed to spark what has become known as the biotech revolution, and has made genetic engineering not only a realistic business model, but a potentially lucrative one. As noted, the technology was still in its infancy in 1980, but by the mid-1990s had developed far enough that marketable goods were now being genetically engineered. One of the companies that has been best known for cashing in on this biotechnology revolution has been Monsanto. Monsanto has had a long history as a chemical manufacturer, being founded in 1901 and getting one of its first big breaks by producing the artificial sweetener known as saccharin, which it supplied to Coca-Cola. Since then, it's gone on to develop a wide array of chemicals which have become household names, some of the most infamous being Agent Orange, DDT, and Aspartame. As its relation to DDT would denote, it has been heavily involved in the herbicide industry in the United States, developing a glyphosate-based herbicide called Roundup in 1973. By the mid-1990s, the genetic engineering revolution had advanced to the point where Monsanto was able to genetically modify various crops to include a segment of DNA from a bacterium which was naturally resistant to its Roundup herbicide. Monsanto availed itself of the 1980 Diamond v. Chakrabarty ruling to patent these new plants and new crops that it was creating. The first commercially available Roundup Ready crop was Roundup Ready soybeans, which were released in 1996, followed by Roundup Ready corn in 1998. And since then, sorghum, canola, alfalfa, and cotton versions of the Roundup Ready crops have been made commercially available. By 2005, it was estimated that 87% of U.S. soybean fields were planted with the Roundup Ready soybeans. Thus, by the late 1990s and early 2000s, most of North America were eating genetically modified crops, and most people were unaware that they were doing so. While all of the proceeding might sound like just another American big business success story, it might be time to step back and take a look at what this issue of patenting a life form really means. The ramifications are indeed staggering. For more on this, let's take a listen to an excellent documentary which I wholeheartedly commend to my listeners. This documentary is entitled The Future of Food, 
and features some extraordinary interviews full of shocking information about the way big business has penetrated the genetic engineering and biotech industries. Right now, let's listen to a clip from that documentary, which features a case in Saskatchewan, Canada, of a farmer named Percy Schmeiser, whose life has been adversely affected by these patent laws and the staggering ramifications for farmers across North America and indeed the world that result from these laws. Let's listen to the audio clip. In Canada, the question of patenting landed directly in Percy Schmeiser's field. I've been farming for 53 years and in those years I've grown uh, mostly wheat, canola, oats and peas. This field has had wheat and, and the field behind me has canola in it or rapeseed as it is known in Europe. When our grandparents came to this country there was no such thing as chemical companies or seed companies and they had to rely and develop their own seed, borrow seed from their neighbors, or bring it from Europe with them. Percy was known in this part of Canada as a seed developer and a seed saver. I would say that our best grains, our best seeds, have not been developed by research people or scientists. They have been developed by farmers. In 1997, Percy sprayed Monsanto's Roundup around the power poles and ditches as he had done for years. Some canola plants did not die. I thought initially that some of those plants didn't die because I had been spraying year after year after year with Roundup in the same area, and companies warn you, you shouldn't spray every year because you could develop a resistance. Monsanto found out about it, and they went on my land that I farm without my knowledge, without my permission, and took plants or seeds, and said some of that was Monsanto's Roundup Ready canola. In August the 6th of 1998, they launched a lawsuit against me. Monsanto claimed that Percy had illegally obtained their genetically modified canola without a license and had infringed on their patent. Patents historically have been for things like, I've used the example of a carburetor, the carburetor doesn't get up one day and start replicating itself everywhere and introducing itself into your car so that all of a sudden you have somebody else's carburetor one morning and then you get sued for patent infringement. So that's the unique nature of this type of technology that uh, once you've unleashed it into the environment, uncontrolled and unconfined, it will spread everywhere. Before the main trial, Monsanto withdrew then all their allegations against me that I had ever obtained a seed illegally. And they went on to say that it didn't matter how the seed got on to my land, I still infringed on their patent. Because my land is on the east side of the road, the main road, the prevailing winds here are from the west. So it would be natural for the canola that blew off of trucks to land in the field here. In fact, one farmer uh, told me that when he drove past my land uh, hauling around a ready canola, his tarp had broken and he estimated he lost enough past my two miles of land to see 2,000 acres. 
Well, I think one of the uh, biggest issues in the case is uh, where to draw the line between the people and the companies who produce and come up with this new technology. The line ended up being drawn way into the farmers' fields. And our contention was the line should clearly be drawn such that farmers have a right to continue to farm. They should be able to save and reuse their own seed. They should be able to buy seed, conventional seed, from their neighbors as they've had in the past without having to worry about uh, whether they're infringing somebody's patent now. 1999, when I went to uh, seed uh, my canola fields, I was advised by my lawyer not to use my own seed again because I now knew it was contaminated by Monsanto's genetic altered canola. And it was seed that was adapted to this region and grew quite well because it was resistant to various diseases. Percy destroyed over 1,000 pounds of seed that he and his wife had developed over decades. The lawsuit and my loss of the, my seeds was the hardest thing that we could have ever happened to us. Now here, Monsanto comes along. What we worked for all these years, they just wanted to take it away just like that from us. I could never do that to, the, to go into their office and take anything. I would be prosecuted. And they can just come and, and do anything to the farmers just like they, they, own, they own them or so. It really is upsetting. And I feel they took my rights away and my privacy. And we're not the only ones they've been doing to it, it's many others. Why are they prosecuting so many of these little farmers when they only made worth a couple hundred thousand when they're such a multinational company? Why? Is, is it greed or is it they just want to control all the seeds? As one can imagine, the horrifying legal precedent set by Percy Schmeiser has made him something of a cause celeb in the anti-GMO movement. The fact that he can be successfully sued for Roundup-ready canola having blown onto his field is manifestly unjust, and just one of the signs that there is something deeply unsettling in the process that is regulating the genetic engineering industry. As noted in that audio clip, Percy Schmeiser is certainly not the only person who has seen legal action result from having Roundup-ready crops detected in their fields. This has happened to numerous farmers throughout the United States and Canada, and numerous lawsuits have resulted. Again, this is a disturbing trend, and one that is exposed in greater detail in that documentary. Of course, there is resistance to this tyranny of patents that is growing as a result of the 1980 Diamond v. Chakrabarty ruling. And one of those bright spots of resistance is Vandana Shiva. Vandana Shiva is a native of India and a recipient of the 1993 Alternative Nobel Prize. She has started an experimental organic farm in the Himalayan foothills known as Navdanya. Let's turn to an audio clip from another documentary. Again, I recommend this documentary, Unnatural Selection, to my listeners. In this audio clip, Vandana Shiva takes the Unnatural Selection documentary filmmakers on a tour of Navdenya and discusses some of the crops that they have growing on their experimental farm. In this field, my colleague Prithvi, whose name literally means the earth, is uh, harvesting a rich, rich crop of turmeric, haldi, which is critical to our food. Haldi, or turmeric, is an extremely strong natural antibiotic. A few years ago, the antibiotic use of this haldi 
was patented. And the patent said, buy haldi in your kitchen store. You can buy the haldi in your kitchen store, but it will belong to our patent. It'll, you'll have to pay us. The reason they patented it was because antibiotics are failing. Haldi is not failing us. We use it when we have infection. We use it in our cooking so that every day it is protecting our health. It is a beautiful, beautiful Ayurvedic medicine, also a food. In Indian diet, there is no division between food and medicine. It's all one beautiful continuum. And we have other root crops here, the arbi, which we use for a wonderful, wonderful vegetables. We have ginger. We have three varieties of the sacred basil, the tulsi. This too has been patented. It. We worship the tulsi in our backyard. Every home in India will have a tulsi pot. And when we worship, we say, in you I will assume the cosmos resides. And I will pay you reverence to pay reverence to this amazing creation. We use the leaves in winter for coughs and colds. The tea from this, mint tea, wonderful. This too has been patented. In fact, every third crop in our fields, there's a patent sitting in US patent offices. But for us, this is a freedom zone. We will keep these crops free for future generations. As Ms. Shiva notes, what is at stake here is freedom. In fact, one of the most fundamental freedoms known to humanity. The freedom to plant and harvest our own food crops should we choose to, without interference from business or government. But even apart from the chilling effect that the ability to patent life forms has on our ability to control our own food supply, there are still fundamental scientific questions about the genetic engineering technology, which is so rapidly being integrated into our food supply. Remarkably enough for a technology that represents not just a difference of degree, but a difference in kind from any other type of biotechnology that has ever been employed, there has been a scandalous paucity in testing of genetically engineered crops. One of the first scientific tests of the effects of GM foods on mammals was conducted by Dr. Arpad Pustai. Dr. Pustai was commissioned by the Scottish office of the UK government to examine the effects of feeding rats with GM food for 100 days. The shocking results of that study indicated that the GM-fed rats had depleted immune systems damaged internal organs, and stunted growth. These results were shocking, perhaps horrifying, for those who saw them, and the backlash from those financially connected to the biotechnology industry was swift. Dr. Pustai was quickly retired from his position, and despite independent peer review which has since vindicated his original research, he was at the time tarred and feathered for reporting on the results of his experiment with alarm. More shocking experimental evidence of the potential hazards of GM foods were presented by Dr. Irina Ermakova of Moscow to the Russian Academy of Sciences in 2005. Her study of feeding GM soy flour to female rats showed alarming results indeed. In her study, the female rats who had been fed the GM soy flour died at an alarming rate. 55.6% of those rats born to the females who were fed GM soy flour died during the experiment, whereas 6.8% of the control group died, meaning that the offspring of these GM-fed rats died at a rate almost 10 times that of the control group. 
These shocking experimental results show that there are significant scientific questions about the safety of genetically modifying our food crops. But let's take a step back for a moment to look at the scientific process by which organisms are crossed. Let's turn back to a clip from that documentary, The Future of Food, which explains the scientific process by which genes from one organism are inserted into another organism. Genetic engineering is really a radical revolution in food production. It's really a cell invasion technology. You know, people have heard they're taking a flounder gene and putting it in tomato so the tomato can last in, in cold temperatures. But people ask, how does that flounder gene get in that tomato? How does it get in there? And what really happens is the only way you can do it is to invade the cell of the tomato and deposit the flounder gene. Well, what's good at invading cells? Bacteria and viruses. After 12 years of searching, Monsanto found a soil bacteria that is naturally immune to Roundup herbicide. Their goal was to genetically engineer DNA from these bacteria into various plants. They cut out a sequence of DNA that is resistant to Roundup. But if this DNA sequence alone is inserted into a corn plant, it will have no effect. So the next step involves E. coli bacteria. Gaps are created in the E. coli DNA, and when the two test tubes are mixed together, some of the E. coli DNA recombines with the Roundup-resistant bacteria. Then the technicians smuggle the engineered DNA into the cells of the corn plant they want to modify. Cells will naturally reject foreign DNA, so they developed a method using soil bacteria that causes tumors in plants. They use this bacteria to ferry the engineered DNA into the plant's nucleus. There are also two other methods used to get the engineered DNA through the cell wall. One uses a stream of electricity to create tiny holes in the plant cells so they become vulnerable to infiltration by foreign DNA. Another is the gene gun, which blasts particles of gold coated with engineered DNA into the plant cells. Each of these three methods needs a promoter gene that turns on the desired characteristics. The promoter gene is often extracted from the cauliflower mosaic virus. This capacity of bacteria and viruses to invade ma mammals in different ways is what really has a lot of people edgy about biotechnology because that's, that's really what the tools are all about. In order to move genetic material from one organism to another that don't normally cross, you've got to sort of behave like bacteria and viruses and invade into the cells and become established just like a virus must become established. And they do one more thing. They attach to that an antibiotic marker system. The antibiotic marker is a gene which is naturally resistant to a specific antibiotic. So later they can test whether the genetic cassette is being expressed. The most cataclysmic force in the food system right now is the fact that the medical community has is just terrified about the loss of antibiotics. 
no one really understands how using antibiotic marker genes in genetic engineering techniques might contribute to the problem. The biomedical community on a worldwide basis is absolutely focused on this problem now. As we move on into this uh, so-called biotech revolution and we start um, producing more and more transgenic manipulations, we'll start seeing pieces of DNA interacting with each other in ways that are totally unpredictable. We have now learned that genes function in complex networks and a single gene can express or influence many traits. I think uh, this is probably the largest biological experiment humanity has ever entered into. Given that these genetically engineered organisms are not being adequately tested before they're added to the food supply, indeed this is a giant experiment, and we are the test subjects. There are a number of worrying details brought up in that explanation of how organisms are crossed. And I'm not only referring to the instinctual revulsion at the idea of bacteria genes ending up in the food that we're eating, the method itself, as noted in that clip, can have all sorts of unintended consequences, which are impossible to predict in advance. A case in point may be BT corn. BT corn is a corn that has been genetically cross-engineered with soil bacteria to express a gene which produces a protein which can kill Lepidoptera larvae. In effect, this gives the corn a natural insecticide built into its very DNA. While it's troubling enough to think about what this corn, which can kill small insects when eaten, does to human beings when eaten, it's also worrying to note the possible unintended consequences of this insecticide being added to corn. There's a report from thesimon.com, which was filed on May 1st, 2007, entitled Give Bees a Chance, which deals with the recent Colony Collapse Disorder, or CCD. Colony collapse disorder is a worrying trend of bees dying in mass numbers across the United States and Europe. Bees are, of course, essential for the pollination, which accounts for over 90 varieties of vegetables and fruits which humans consume, including apples, avocados, blueberries, and cherries. The sudden extinction of mass numbers of bees is a worrying trend indeed, and one that this article, Give Bees a Chance, makes a convincing case for, is caused by the genetic engineering of BT crops. It notes a case of the only GM crop trial in the Netherlands quickly leading to the colony collapse within 100 kilometers of the fields in question. Another consequence of letting genetically modified organisms out into the wild is something called genetic pollution. It's evident that with something like chemical pollution, such as an oil spill, however bad the spill might be or however large an area it might affect, it is not going to replicate, and it can be contained. However, when you release a genetically modified organism into the wild, there is no way to contain it, as is abundantly evident from the Percy Schmeiser case. Thinking about other organisms, such as genetically modified fish, or genetically modified livestock, the results are even more troubling. What will happen when these genetically modified organisms start to breed with organisms in the wild? There is no way of containing the effects of whatever genetic modification have been done, and no way of containing their unintended consequences.
Surely one of the ways in which consumers can fight back against the worrying effects of genetically modified organisms is to vote with their wallet. If consumers are troubled enough by the idea of genetically modified organisms ending up on their plate, they can of course choose not to buy genetically modified crops. Or so one would think. To learn about the current state of GM labeling in the United States, as well as other GMO issues, I recently spoke with Dr. Neil Carman. Dr. Carman has a PhD in the biological sciences, sits on the genetic engineering committee for the Sierra Club, and is a co-founder of the SayNoToGMOs.org website. I reached Dr. Carmen in Austin, Texas, and I asked him what regulations are in place for labeling GM foods in the United States. There is no labeling. Uh, there's no labeling required by the FDA uh, in the United States uh, because the companies don't want it. And, of course, my argument is that if these foods, if these genetically modified foods are so great, why not put the label on them so people can say, hey, I want to try that. But, you know, for some reason, uh, it's kind of like putting a radioactive label on something that, you know, the, the biotech industry has said, well, we don't want that labeled. And so, you know, they, you know why do they fear having these uh, foods labeled? Uh, is there some concern about, uh, you know, uh, effects like allergies that might appear? Um, I, I think uh, they know that there's potential human health hazards associated with these novel foods. And as long as you don't label, there is no way you can trace any health effects back through the food system because there's no labeling. If, if you're eating uh, some genetically engineered, uh, you know, crop uh, ingredient in a food and, and it causes allergic reaction, it's, it's virtually impossible to prove that it might be due to uh, genetic engineering of the crop because uh, there's no traceability uh, in a label. Uh, if you try to contact the food store where you got it, they're not going to know. Uh, if you, you know, you'd have to go back literally to the farmers uh, growing it, and um, and they may not necessarily know where you know all of their crops end up in the food supply. So, you know, there's a great deal of ignorance. So the biotech industry likes to say in public and debates and so forth that I've participated in that there's not any evidence of, of health effects to uh, people eating these foods. Well, um, the reason there's no evidence is you cannot do a study. You cannot do a health study, a symptom survey, an epidemiological study because uh, without traceability, without labeling and full disclosure, you cannot do a study unless you do it, you know, uh, in a laboratory um, or in a controlled situation. And which agency or office would be in charge of regulating the labeling laws? Well, it's really the uh, Food and Drug Administration, the FDA. And at this point, they're kind of in the pockets of the biotech industry and uh, and not, you know, encouraging uh, or requiring any labeling. Uh, there's been some efforts to uh, voluntarily label food, uh, milk products that are free of Monsanto's um, um, milk product. Uh, well, it's actually, uh, they, uh, Monsanto makes a hormone, um, Pozolac, that is injected into cows to increase milk production, RBGH. It's a recombinant bovine growth hormone that's been genetically engineered to increase uh, milk production in cows, and, and it definitely works, but the cows 
uh, are under great stress. They have shorter lifespans, even though their milk production goes up temporarily, maybe for a few years, but they seem to have a lot more illnesses. And um, so in this milk, what ends up is not just you know, uh, increased volume of milk, but you've got um, potentially more, uh, more pus if the uh, cow is sick. Uh, you've got uh, antibiotics and hormones uh, from the cow if it's being treated. Uh, with antibiotics for its uh, its illness, and so anyway, uh, there's great concerns that this um, uh, that this milk is is not as healthy, um, and so some um, milk producers who are not using it have been labeling their milk as RBGH free or hormone free milk. Uh, or GMO-free milk, and Monsanto has not liked that anywhere in the U.S., and they've threatened lawsuits against um, different uh, uh, milk producers and dairy farmers across the U.S. So that's the only... Uh, there, there, there's some labeling of, of foods that are organic uh, or do not contain genetically uh, engineered uh, food material. All right. So for those listeners who are concerned or are, are growing concerned about the GMO situation, where would you recommend they go for more information about these uh, organisms? Well, there's a great deal of information on the Say No to GMOs website. That's say no to, say no to GMOs.org. Uh, we've, um, a colleague of mine, that's a nonprofit uh, effort, and um, none of us are paid to do any of his work. Uh, but um, that website has, has been built to basically educate the public um, about, uh, you know, these hazards of genetically, you know, modified foods and, and you know, how to avoid them. Um, right now, it's very difficult to say how much is in the food supply. We don't know where all of it's going, how much of it's sold in the U.S., how much is shipped overseas. Um, a lot of it, we think, in terms of like the corn and soy products could end up uh, being fed to animals. So we are not really sure exactly how much of this is ending up in the human food supply. But, um, you know, we know there is some, but the, uh, the full extent of it we don't know because there's no labeling. But the Say No to GMOs website uh, is a is a, a great wealth of information that can help educate consumers. Okay, excellent. Well, Dr. Carmen, thank you so much for joining us today. Okay, well, you're welcome, James. I trust that the absurdity of the FDA not requiring labeling for GMO foods is self-evident. The only ones with something to lose in having GMO foods labeled are the big agribusinesses like Monsanto who have a financial stake in making sure that GM foods get incorporated into the food supply. The whole issue becomes a lot clearer when you start looking at how well-connected the board of directors of a company like Monsanto is. You have the Supreme Court Judge Clarence Thomas, who helped put George W. Bush into office, who was one of Monsanto's lawyers. You have the U.S. Secretary of Agriculture, Ann Veneman, who was on the board of directors of Monsanto's Calgene Corporation. You have the former Secretary of Defense, Donald Rumsfeld, who helped aspartame get approved for, by the FDA despite indications that it's a toxic substance, who was also on the board of directors of Monsanto's Searle Pharmaceuticals. 
And you have the former U.S. Secretary of Health, Tommy Thompson, who was helped in his bid for the governorship of Wisconsin to the tune of $50,000 by Monsanto. All of the information presented today is worrying, but there's something fundamentally worrying about genetic engineering. There's something almost instinctual about our revulsion at the idea of this technology that it's difficult to place a finger on, but there is an underlying philosophical point to be made here. Let's turn back to the documentary Unnatural Selection for an audio clip which demonstrates quite clearly what this worrying point underlying the genetic engineering technology is. Genetic engineering, uh, to some extent, is a, about a 400-year-old mistake. It was a mistake that began with the Cartesian Revolution and this idea that life is a machine. Uh, uh, Descartes said that, you know, that basically animals are bet machines, that animals are basically machines. And the Cartesians would vivisect uh, 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 cats and dogs, and when they would hear the screams, they would say, aha, this is like the gears shifting in the machine. That's where this noise is coming from. I think this was a totally mechanistic vision. And if you trace the last 400 years, you can see there's been a certain part of the scientific community, and by no means all, that has continued this mechanistic myth, very dangerous myth. So now that they see the entire living world as simply machines and genes as the software, that's why they believe in genetic engineering. They're engineering life as if they were engineering machines. Qu you know, they're reductionist, efficiency, exactly the same principles that you use in a machine they're trying to reduce life to. That's the fundamental mistake of genetic engineering. This, then, is what is so revolting about genetic engineering. It's a reduction of life to the status of mere biological machines. This trend of reduction of life to biological machine status is directly in the face of the fundamental tenets of biological sciences, which suggest that everything is reducible to mere cells and genes and DNA to be manipulated in any way that the scientist feels fit. However, this is something that the majority of the public knows instinctually is not right. And it's in that spirit that perhaps we can read the real tenor in this disturbing article from the Washington Post from last week, December 17, 2007. It's headlined, Synthetic DNA on the Brink of Yielding New Life Forms. And it reads in part, quote, It has been 50 years since scientists first created DNA in a test tube, stitching ordinary chemical ingredients together to make life's most extraordinary molecule. Until recently, however, even the most sophisticated laboratories could make only small snippets of DNA, an extra gene or two to be inserted into corn plants, for example, to help the plants ward off insects or tolerate drought. Now researchers are poised to cross a dramatic barrier, the creation of life forms driven by completely artificial DNA. Scientists in Maryland have al already built the world's first entirely handcrafted chromosome, a large looping strand of DNA made from scratch in a laboratory containing all the instructions a microbe needs to live and reproduce. In the coming year, they hope to transplant it into a cell where it expects to boot itself up like software downloaded from the internet and conjole the waiting cell to do its bidding. And while the first synthetic chromosome is a plagiarized version of a natural one, Others that code for life forms that have never existed before are already under construction. End quote. I don't know what else to say. I think this is one of the most pressing issues facing humanity, facing the globe itself today. 
There's nothing greater that we can do than become part of this fight against this blind implementation of a technology without adequate testing and without adequate safeguards that might fundamentally alter the face of life on the planet. I leave you today with the words of Percy Schmeiser, who in this case, I think, speaks for us all. Thank you for joining me for today's episode of the Corbett Report. Join me again next week for another episode. Monsanto ready to wage war. Schmeiser's case opened the door for Monsanto to pursue other patent breaches. A lot of people have asked me um, why I didn't just settle. I probably could have settled for maybe a slap on the wrist or maybe a few thousand dollars fine. But what uh, I did was talk it over with my wife and said, look, they destroyed our seed, everything we've worked for in the last 50 years. And, our, and if I sign this, that, uh, that I grew genetic altered canola without a license when we were doing our own thing, minding our own business, I couldn't live with myself. And I feel that it was taking my fundamental rights away from me. My grandparents left a system like that way back turn of the century to get away from control and a feudal type system. Are we going to want to go back to that? And I, we said no. We'll fight it and stand up for what we believe in. You know, they're reductionist, efficiency, exactly the same principles that you use in a machine they're trying to reduce life to. That's the fundamental mistake of genetic engineering.